Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we stand in the kitchen and do dishes all night because we're too anxious to talk to anyone. By the way, that's also the title of my memoir, incidentally. <laughs> so keep an eye out for that New York Times bestseller. It's just like, you know, a list of all the dishes I've ever done at parties and who I was avoiding in the moment. A real page turner, y'all. So anyway, grab your what? Your dish gloves <laughs> and your and your fishnets and let's get into it. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez. And real quick, I want to shout out Shantae Williams. Shantae commented on the healing trauma bonding episode saying, oh my God, this episode was so great and really opened my eyes to the ways I've trauma bonded and betrayed myself in relationships. I mean, ouch, but also yay. <laughs> yay. That's not easy to do to recognize those patterns and see how you've betrayed yourself. It fucking hurts to see that in ourselves, but it's also literally the only way to create different outcomes. So fuck yeah, Shantae, stoked for you. Also a little housekeeping. Y'all probably know by now, but I'm taking a couple months off. After this episode, I'm doing one more that'll come out the week of Christmas. And then we'll just go ahead and call the last two years plus season one <laughs> while I chill out for a minute and regroup before coming back in March. And FYI, the episode I'll be putting out in a couple of weeks won't have a guest since I feel like a dick asking people to record with me the week of Christmas. So I'll be doing a solo episode that you can turn to when you need to escape your family. And also on that note, if this pod has helped you over the last two years and you want to help me make more episodes for the cost of a cup of coffee, you can just find the pod on Spotify, hit the about tab and click the link that says support this podcast, or you can just shoot something over to my Venmo. It's at Remy Ramirez. Okay. This week we're talking about the abandonment wound. <sighs> Y'all, who would I even be without my abandonment wound? <laughs> it's truly just in there having big opinions, needing all kinds of attention, making choices that I later deeply regret. Or I should say that was absolutely how it used to look. I've done a ton of healing around it, so it doesn't quite run the show as much anymore. But for most of my adulthood, my abandonment wound was 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 the one calling the shots, right? Like without me even knowing and when that's the case, we are really setting ourselves up for heartbreak because that abandonment wound, let's be honest, doesn't make great choices for us. It's a really painful place to be in and it requires intentional healing. So to help us get some perspective about it, I'm so happy to welcome somatic practitioner Veronica Rotman to the show. Hi, Veronica. Thank you for coming on. I am already just so delighted and excited to be here and have this conversation with you. Thank you. <gasps> Yay. Well, I'm so excited to get into this with you. First, let's chat about your astrology. You are a Libra sun, Capricorn moon, Sag rising. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Okay, cool. Well, first, I just have to name the obvious, which is that you are probably now the 15th therapist I've had on who has a Capricorn moon. 
And I think it's a phenomenon that makes complete sense. I always say this because the moon oversees the emotional landscape and Capricorn wants to establish order and organization and make sense of things. So we have a desire to create order in the emotional realm. Cap is an earth sign. So there's also an innate ability to ground emotions and to link emotions into the physical realm. Mm -hmm. Libra is such a wonderful sign. I'm a little biased because I have a Libra moon. But Libra rules the seventh house of one-on-one relationships, which by the way, therapists and coaches, et cetera, those fall into that house. Therapists are some of our most intimate one-on-one relationships. It's ruled by Venus, the goddess of love. Libra is ruled by Venus. So that house also oversees beauty and justice. Libra is an air sign, which means that unlike Taurus, who's also ruled by Venus, Libra is an intellectual sign and a sign of communication that also happens to be a lover of love because Venus. So Libra has a lot going on. Then you have that Sag rising. Sag rising folks are fearless. Sag is a fire sign. It's ruled by optimistic, fun-loving, lucky Jupiter, right? The planet of luck and abundance and the planet that most wants to expand. And that can look a few different ways. Jupiter loves learning, travel, philosophy, spirituality. So Sagittarius loves to explore both literally and figuratively, right? The rising sign oversees how we interact with the outside world. And we have Sag here. So Sag is a fun-loving sign that because it's mutable, right? It's a mutable sign, has the ability to get along with all kinds of personalities. So you have this deep desire to learn and grow and explore and how you relate to the outside world. And that exploration, maybe it's physical, right? Literal through travel, or maybe it's exploration of the internal world through emotional or spiritual growth. Jupiter rules spirituality. Plus you have a love of all kinds of people on top of that. So going back to Libra, right? That makes it really easy for you to feel comfortable in one-on-one connections with all kinds of personalities, which I can only imagine would be really helpful for you in your work. Does any of that resonate for you? Uh, 100%. I feel like I've had my birth chart read a handful of times, but this one, like you're really hitting, hitting the nail on the head. I, when I heard that I had a Capricorn moon, my first reaction was, nah, I am so not a Capricorn, but that's right. It's the interior self. It's, uh, it's the shadow, it's the subconscious. And so I literally just couldn't see it. But once I started, especially doing somatics, I was like, oh, I see now this is actually the driving force behind a lot of my impulses to understand why people behave the way they do the emotions that you know drive them towards reacting a certain way and how yeah we can kind of like get a little more organized with that um so i am not inherently an organized person on the outside but my work in being organized is very much related to yeah the emotions and you know the body yes Exactly. Yeah. I think that Capricorn, I I understand because I'm a Sagittarius and I have a Gemini rising. So I like, I'm not, if you looked at that on paper, you'd be like, this person's chaotic, but I have Mars and Capricorn. So I'm actually 
very grounded. I also have sun, sextile, Saturn. So I, so there's a lot of Capricorn influence, Saturn influence in my chart. And I understand that like what sometimes when you see those things in your chart, you're like, what the fuck? But actually it's such a beautiful, um, amalgamation. It's such a beautiful combination because you have Libra air, Sagittarius fire, and then you have that Capricorn to help ground you the, an earth sign. So really all of these elements coming together to help you really do what you do and, and be, be the person that you are. So yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to dive into my experience with the abandonment wound. And while I do that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, feelings, right? Like any screenplays you've been working on. <laughs> If you if you feel moved to share some creative writing with us, we love or you can just listen, chill out, do a cucumber mask. Either way, I'll turn questions over to you at the end. How does that sound? Sounds great. (laughs) Cool. So let me start by saying I think there are different ways that we can be abandoned in childhood. I'm starting with childhood. There can be literal abandonment, like a parent leaving, even if that's through a death, for example, or other kind of absence. I have a friend who was adopted and even though he was raised by really loving parents and, you know, in a supportive family, he's talked to me several times about how sensitive his abandonment, abandonment wound is as a result of that adoption. So if there's a physical, literal leaving of some kind, it could even be a grandparent or sibling or other caregiver or loved one, right? We can still experience the abandonment wound in that way. For me... I guess you could say there was a literal absence in the sense that my dad wasn't around very much. My parents got divorced when I was six months old because my dad was abusive and cheating and doing drugs. And also just he just really wasn't that interested in having a family. He was a very popular musician and he was more about partying and being a musician than anything else. And that did wear on me as a kid. My mom would later tell me that I would obsessively draw pictures of my mom, my dad, my sister and me all holding hands. I would just like keep drawing the same picture and giving it to her. I really wanted that family. And I remember feeling like there was something wrong with us, like like that we were broken because of this separation between my dad and my mom and because we didn't have a dad in the house. Later in my life, I would feel a different kind of literal abandonment because my mom, for all intents and purposes, was a single mom. She was gone a lot at work. I have a really clear memory of being seven and getting sick at school and there was no one to pick me up. So a neighbor picked me up, a woman who I always this is the 80s, by the way, where they were just like, call your neighbor, maybe it was this woman I always felt weird around and I she picked me up. I went back to her house. She put me in like one of her kids' beds. And I just remember it was just, it was just weird and uncomfortable. And there were actually so many moments like that in my childhood where like my mom couldn't be there. And so no one, like either no one was there or I was with someone I just didn't feel comfortable with. Like I I can't even count the number of times I had a choir performance or a dance performance or whatever. And like all my friends, parents were there afterwards, hugging them and telling them what a good job they'd done. And I was just sort of standing there alone, like trying to figure out what to do more times than I can count. Plus my mom had to actually like leave town a lot for work and we would stay with people 
that I wasn't ever that comfortable with. So there was always just a lot of me feeling alone, feeling like I didn't have that safe parent. There was also the literal abandonment that I felt with my dad as a real, as a result of his substance abuse. I could name, you know, multiple instances, but I'll talk about this one because it came up in therapy recently. When I was 12, I flew to Austin to spend the summer with my dad, like I did every year after we moved to LA. But leading up to this summer, my dad told me that he was going to take me with him and his girlfriend and her band on tour with them in Europe, which I was fucking over the moon about. I would just like could not wait. He also told me that they had to do something. They were going to have something to do in Colorado. And so we were going to go to Colorado. We were going to stay in this cabin. And I was just I was just so excited. I was like beside myself with excitement. So in my mind, I was like on this plane going to Austin, I'm going to have this incredible summer. But instead, not long after I got there, my dad went on a bender and he ended up leaving my brother and me alone with his girlfriend for like five days and just didn't come home. When he did come home, he was super fucking high. Like, I don't know if he'd been doing meth or what it was, but he was so high that he like got right in my face and just started loudly trying to explain to me how to pass this level in a video game. <laughs> just like, you know, fucking out of his mind. Didn't make any sense what he was saying. It scared the living shit out of me. So I felt abandoned by my dad in that scenario, not just because he didn't come home, but also because I think with addicts, children have a feeling that the, that they're choosing drugs or booze or whatever it is over the child, right? But then there was this other piece to this story that, oh, Jesus Christ, it's just insane in retrospect. Just before my dad came home, high as fuck that day, his girlfriend and I, who had super bonded during the five days that my dad didn't come home. I mean, we were already close. Like I had a good relationship with her, but because, you know, she was pretty emotionally immature. She sort of treated me like a friend and a confidant while my dad was on this bender. And I felt really close to her as a result of that. I was also used to that because my mom did that too. Anyway, it's, and if, and if you can relate to that, you should listen to the parentification episodes, my friend. Okay. Anyway, it's been five days of my dad being gone. It's like nine in the morning or whatever. She and I were literally putting our shoes on and getting ready to go to IHOP for breakfast. And then my dad walks in and starts like, you know, accosting me about this video game, talking so loudly. He's like practically yelling. And she left and went outside and I was cornered by him. He literally was like, I was like against a wall. My dad's like telling me about how to pass this level and I couldn't get away. So finally, somehow I managed to get around him and I ran outside to find her and she was standing by her car and she said, oh, you made it. I was just about to leave without you. The fact that this woman was going to leave me a child alone with my dad while he was so fucking high on crack or whatever the fuck it was. The second she said that to me, my heart dropped. I didn't say anything to her, of course, because I'd been raised to never question or criticize adults in any way or else I'd be punished. But the sense of abandonment I felt on top of already feeling abandoned by my dad, like I was looking to her in that scenario to be my parent because my dad wasn't doing it. Like she wasn't like, I'm not leaving this house without you. Or, you know, if you hadn't come out in one more minute, I was going to go back in there and make sure you were OK. She was just going to take off. 
So there's also a piece for me in abandonment about not feeling protected by adults who should have been protecting me. That summer was so crazy, by the way. I ended up leaving Austin, you know, a couple months early and flying back to California. My dad and his girlfriend went to Europe without me, which was like a whole other, you know, feeling abandoned, left behind thing. I didn't get to do any of the things with my dad that he said we were going to do. And it was all so emotionally intense for me that I started my period for the first time days before I left Austin. It was like the distress was so overwhelming that it like forced me into my first period. So those are some of the ways that literal abandonment played a role in my childhood. But I think... I don't want to say deeper, but another, an equally deep source of my abandonment wound is a way that my parents emotionally abandoned me. I was just listening to the um, We Can Do Hard Things podcast, the episode on emotionally immature parents, which I would love to know where people stand on the difference between a narcissist and an emotionally immature parent because they had Lindsay C. Gibson on. She's the one who wrote that book, Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And when she was describing emotionally immature parents, she was like, they lack empathy. They want an audience, not a connection. They can't be wrong or accountable. They dismiss other people's emotions. I was like, this is narcissism? Question mark. Like there's a diagnosis for this already. But anyway, you know, maybe there's something I'm I'm missing. But anyway, when she was talking about the adults she labels as emotionally mature on the podcast, one of the things she, and by the way, it was a great episode and I highly recommend. Well, one of the things she talked about was that they threaten or punish children for showing emotions, right? These are people who are super uncomfortable with other people's emotions. They might have a lot of big emotions themselves that often look like tantrums or meltdowns or whatever, but they won't tolerate big emotions, challenging emotions of any kind in other people, especially their children. She said that their children will show up with raw emotions, tender emotions, and that these parents will ignore them, dismiss them, criticize them, make fun of them, threaten the children for having them. And as a result, and this is one of the things she said that really hit home for me, as a result, these children will grow up with a deep sense of loneliness and shame for their challenging emotions because they were abandoned essentially by their parents anytime they were angry or depressed or scared or grief stricken or whatever it was. So they learn, the children learn that there's something wrong with them for being who they are. And they carry a deep loneliness because when they needed love and emotional support, they were abandoned. They were essentially left alone with their emotions. So I experienced this kind of abandonment in deeply traumatizing ways. But it's funny, I can I can think about moments that that maybe don't seem like that big of a deal, but they were so painful for me. Like, I mean, I don't want to say not a big deal, but they're not like huge moments, right? They're they're more subtle. But like I can remember when I was seven, my aunt, my dad's sister, got married in a tiny town in Texas where she and my grandma and grandpa lived. I was the flower girl in the wedding and I had gone down early to be with my grandma leading up to the wedding. My dad was playing the wedding reception, my dad's musician. And I was so, so, so excited to see him, right? Because I didn't get to see my dad very often. 
I couldn't wait. I was just so happy that we were all going to be together like a family, which of course is like what I always wanted was family. Of course, my dad couldn't be bothered to get there for the actual wedding. (laughs) He just like skipped that and showed up later for the reception. And I remember my grandma telling me that my dad had gotten there finally. Right. And he was outside. So we're at the reception. I run outside to find him and he was smoking a cigarette with the dudes in his band. And I ran up to him and just the sheer level of not giving a fuck that my dad showed at seeing me. Right. I mean, I could have been someone he met at a bar once like months ago. He was like, Oh, Hey, what's up? And throughout the night, he didn't make any attempt to spend time with me, to hug me, to talk to me. He was there with his friends. He was there to do a job. He wasn't excited to see me the way I was excited to see him. So this is one of those moments when the abandonment wound looked like emotional neglect, right? And that's another form it can take. It wasn't a dramatic moment. It wasn't intense or overt. It was just like, he's there physically. He just kind of doesn't give a shit. It's its own kind of abandonment. But I remember so clearly how hurt I was that my dad was more excited to shoot the shit with dudes in his band who we saw all the time than to spend even 15 minutes with me who he never got to see his own daughter. With my mom, there was intense emotional abandonment. I've talked about those moments so much on the pod that I won't go too deep into them. There was the time when I was 19 when my mom invited my ex-boyfriend who had cheated on me over for Christmas without asking me or telling me. And when I told her afterwards that that really hurt my feelings, she told me that I'd ruined Christmas for her. There was a other time when I was 15 and I showed her a poem I'd written about being sexually assaulted and she read it and then said, aren't you over this yet? So those are some of the big ones that I'll name. And they're definitely more overt than the examples with my dad because they involve a direct rejection and like um, criticism of my feelings. The message in both of those scenarios was there's something wrong with you for your feelings, right? So it's like textbook, emotionally immature parenting, according to Lindsay C. Gibson. I would also say it's abusive. But there was a more recent one that happened during the pandemic that I think is also sort of helpful in illustrating this. So the two of us were at her house alone and we were watching something, some show on Netflix, and there was a rape scene. I was assaulted in 2017 and I got super triggered by this show. So I just stood up and went into the kitchen and literally hid behind the island in the kitchen, like crouched on the ground and started crying silently in the dark, which when I think back on that... Uh, yeah, holy shit. What a trauma response to hide my crying from my mom. I knew it wasn't safe to show her that I was hurting because of exactly the scenarios I just described about my mom. I'd been emotionally abandoned by my mom so many times that I tried to physically hide so I wouldn't be further injured in that moment by whatever her reaction might be. Well, she came into the kitchen and found me crying and she didn't punish me like in the other scenarios I talked about. She did as much as I think my mom is able to do. She drew a bath and put me in the bath and left me there and told me to relax in the bath, which in her mind, I know was the right thing to do. 
And I think it was the best that my mom can do with her limited capabilities, but it's another form of emotional abandonment. My mom isn't able to sit with difficult emotions. She doesn't have the capacity to hold space for me while I cry about being sexually assaulted or to talk to me about my heartache or to hear about what I'm going through to provide me like guidance and wisdom to, to like really engage in ent- intimacy in any meaningful way. She can't do it. The very best she can do is leave me in a bathtub. It's definitely better than saying, aren't you over this yet? But it's still a form of abandonment. And it's why I've experienced tremendous loneliness in my life as an adult. This deep, deep sense that I'm alone. Because not one adult in my childhood was able to meet me emotionally, right? Like my emotions led to abandonment over and over again in my relationships with my parents. I mean, one of the biggest ones was if you're going to cry, you can go to your room. I don't know how many times I heard that. It was like, if you're sad, you need to get the fuck out of here. So let's get into the repercussions of that as an adult. For me, when I came into adulthood, I was going into all these different situations, romantic, career, friendships, literally everything, afraid of being abandoned. If I think about the needs of my abandonment wound, like if it had a voice and could talk and tell me what it wanted, it was truly only concerned with one thing, and that was people not walking away from me. That was its only concern, right? Not being left, not being discarded not being made to feel like I wasn't good enough or that I was flawed and therefore unwanted. That was its only fear. Here are some things that my abandonment wound did not give a single shit about. It didn't give a shit whether or not the person was trustworthy. (laughs) It didn't give a shit about whether the other person treated me well. It didn't give a shit about whether the job was a good fit for me where I flourished and made great money. It didn't give a shit about whether or not the person or situation was like flying 20 red flags. None of that mattered to my abandonment wound. All it cared about was not being abandoned. The pain of feeling like there was something wrong with me that made others not want me was so deep that it would ignore literally everything else to make sure that it's one goal was being met. It's one need was satisfied, not being abandoned. If that meant making sure I wasn't abandoned by the sociopath I was involved with, then by God, so be it. We're staying with that sociopath. And a lot of that was because I came into adulthood with this tremendous loneliness from not having any adults who could comfort me in my times of pain or who could love me even when I was depressed or angry, who like, you know, in the case of my dad, wanted to spend quality time with me or know me in a meaningful way or show up for me, right? The abandonment I'd experienced as a kid had left me with a terrible loneliness. And so a lot of what I was doing subconsciously in trying to escape the abandonment wound was escape the loneliness that that wound brought up in me. And so naturally, I stayed in shitty relationships where I knew Duder was lying to me. I kept going back to hooking up with guys who treated me like an afterthought. And by the way, it wasn't just my romantic relationships. It was friendships, too. I'd stay in friendships with people who disrespected me, who couldn't show up for me, who didn't celebrate me, who would try to hurt my feelings. (laughs) Just like bad situations and jobs. I would be like, I have to stick this out. Meanwhile, my boss is this crazy asshole. But the abandonment wound was driving the bus. And all she cared about was making sure no one left me. 
I would people please with people who were abusive or self-centered or just emotionally unavailable to keep them with me, to keep them from leaving, which only made me feel more lonely. I was trying to escape that loneliness, but the way I was doing it only left me feeling lonelier because I was insisting on keeping abusive or unavailable people in my immediate circle at all times. What that would look like in romantic scenarios was often this weird mixed message thing I would do because half of me was being run by the abandonment wound, but the other half was being run by this like feminist rage of being treated like shit. Like I knew I was being treated like shit and I was mad about it, but I couldn't stop doing it. So I was in this like inner conflict. So what I would do was like go out to a party where I knew this guy would be, wear something really cute to, you know, try to get his attention, hook up with him. And then when he would treat me like shit afterwards, I would withdraw and like kind of talk shit to him when I saw him next, like, you know, belittle him or like condescend him, just kind of like be a little sassy. But the instant he called me after that, wanting to hook up again, I would go right back. So for me, there was this push pull that had this confusing effect on how I was showing up. However, it ends up looking for each of us in our individual stories. When we're operating from the abandonment wound, we're going to abandon ourselves. We're putting all our focus on another person or situation, which leaves nothing for us. We abandon our anger. We abandon our boundaries. We abandon our sacred no, which I love the sacred no. <laughs> I recently posted something on the Patrama Party Insta that a therapist posted. And it said that one sign of childhood trauma is being an over understander, being someone who tries to understand the perspective and motivations of the people who abuse you, who use you, who disrespect you instead of being in tune with your own truth, your own experience of the situation. And instead of being your own protector, when you're operating out of the abandonment wound, you have no inner protector. You're going to protect the relationship first and foremost, even when that relationship consistently hurts you because the abandonment wound only wants to feel wanted, only wants to avoid the loneliness or anyway, that, that was my story. That was how it looked for me. I had an experience once where I essentially was approached by a guy I'd secretly had feelings for for a long time, but he was the way that the situation was. He was just swimming in red flags, swimming in them. And, and the situation itself was complicated and just not conducive to a healthy relationship, which was what I wanted. It was just like, you know, how much bad fucking news can be packed into one thing. And of course, ultimately, it blew up in my face. And he was like, oh, oops, I was sad. And I've just been using you for months because of how sad and lonely I am. Sorry. And my response to him was what you did was selfish and it wasn't okay. But I understand that you were in a bad position. And I think that when people are in that position, they can make these kinds of decisions where people get hurt. But I think you're a really good person. So look, is that true? Is it true that I could see how the whole thing could have happened objectively and how he out of desperation and sadness got involved with me to make himself feel better temporarily? Yes, I can see that. But I had a therapy session after the whole thing. And my therapist was like, honey, what he did to you was mean. It was mean to treat you like that. Like, forget what he was going through. Forget his situation. He used you knowing you had feelings for him. Like that's, that's fucked up. 
it took my therapist being like, fuck this dude and fuck what he did to you for me to really wake up to the fact that I get to make my experience of a situation the most important barometer of truth for me. It almost sounds ridiculous to say out loud because it's like, yeah, no shit. That's what you should do. And of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't be compassionate towards others when it's appropriate. But for those of us who grew up so afraid to be rejected or to be left behind, to be dismissed or not chosen, we will discount our own experience, our own pain, our own intuition, just to be able to keep the connection, no matter how dysfunctional. And of course, if you experience parents who were scary or who punished you for being angry at them, then that, of course, is another part of that over-understander response. You learn to prioritize your parents' chaotic, abusive, shitty behavior over your own well-being because you had to in order to keep that relationship with your parents. So for me, the biggest healing I've had has been returning to the reality of my experience, literally asking myself, how does it feel to be in connection with this person? Do I know that I'm safe with this person? Obviously, physically, of course, but also emotionally. Am I safe to express when things aren't working? Or does just the thought of that just riddle me with anxiety, right? Because of how I know they'll respond. Do they create space for me to be honest when I'm upset? Am I safe to have boundaries? Does this person say they'll respect my boundaries, but then they don't, right? Like, do I know I'm loved in this relationship? Do I know I'm valued at this job? Do I feel seen and celebrated and supported? It's wild, but these are not things we know to expect or require when we've been abused as kids. So for me, it takes this direct, really intentional checking in with myself to find out how I feel. And if the answer to these questions is no, then I can ask, okay, then am I here because of my abandonment wound? Am I staying simply because I'm afraid of letting go? And if that's the case, then I know that it's time to move on. Then I know I need to get adult Remy in the driver's seat and make a healthy choice for myself. Because when that abandonment wound is driving, we're headed straight for heartbreak. If I want to create new outcomes for myself, I need to take a sharp left, get the fuck off that highway and drive in the direction of my best interest where I'm valued because I'm making choices that make my well-being a non-negotiable. Okay, Veronica, how are you doing over there? Yeah, I'm I'm good. Thank you so much, Remy, for sharing parts of your story with us uh, in, in regards to the attachment wound. And there's just, yeah, so much insight there and so much that resonates both in my own history and in holding space for people who are healing that attachment wound that that abandonment wound yeah yeah thank you so much for saying that um and that's i mean i think it's exciting to talk to you because like i know what my version of it looks like but you know when you talk about all the people that you're holding space for and your own individual experience i'm like oh yeah there's so many ways that this can show up which brings me to my first question which is what are some of the most common causes of abandonment wounds that you see with your clients right like mine looks one way but like what what all can it look like yeah well i just want to name that on a physiological level 
having an abandonment wound is a really adaptive response to what a lot of us endure in our childhood and in relationships. And I'd really like to kind of highlight and underline this word adaptive. So when we hear, oh, I have an abandonment wound or this, this attachment wound is, is in me, it's driving my reactions and relationships. It, it can kind of come with this sticky film of shame, right? We get kind of caught in, in the stickiness of shame when we hear like, oh, I guess I do have that abandonment wound. So if if you're starting to feel that, I just want to name that actually an abandonment wound is your nervous system, your physiology, your soma responding as it should to what you were taught about what it means to be in a relationship and to guarantee safety. So from day one of our conception, we have this innate drive towards having someone take care of us, attune to us, mirror us, create a sense of safety to the point that we can actually like take it for granted, right? Like if you're one of those people who has spent a lot of your life trying to decide if you're safe or not, uh, in our childhood, ideally, we're not doing that. We're feeling so safe that it's not even something that we have to orient to, to decide if we're safe or not. But a lot of us didn't have that. And so I just want to, again, really emphasize that it it doesn't have to be this big catastrophic capital T event that causes you to have an abandonment wound. Although in my history, I do have that. I have a really high ACE score the adverse childhood experiences score. I like to joke that I aced my ACE score. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, girl. We're not supposed to joke about trauma, but I sometimes just have to. (laughs) Uh, Oh, honey, that's the, that's the whole premise of this podcast, girl. Yeah. (laughs) I really appreciate that. Um, and I work with clients who, like you said, Remy had a very, what might seem like a subtle interaction with their caregiver, or should I say non-interaction, that caused them to develop this really smart, intelligent, adaptive response that is the abandonment wound. So our physiology is formed in a way that we are attuned to how our parents attune to us or don't attune to us. And if there's misattunement, that gets encoded in our physiology as, okay, if they're not attuned to me, I have to self-abandon in some shape or form in order to guarantee that I won't be left behind or discarded or replaced. Because think about it, as babies, as children, our ability to survive is based on our caregivers and staying in relationship with them. So if we like zoom way back to when we were cave people, If we were left alone as a baby or a child living in the wilderness, we most likely were going to not make it right. Like there was like a small chance of our survival. This is, is still the driving force behind our relationships, even if we are relatively safe. So it's encoded in your physiology to feel 
that you are being taken care of as a child and even the most subtle gesture of misattunement, especially when it's kind of ongoing, right? Maybe it's when you get home from school, your dad is too busy with work to really attune in the way that you need him to, to meet you where you're at. And, and it can be as subtle as he, he doesn't make eye contact or his tone of voice is lacking that prosody and that sense of I'm here, I'm present with you and what, what you have going on. And yeah, it's, it's adaptive, it's intelligent. And when we get into our body, we can rewire it. Oh my God. I love that. And I love that you bring in, thank you so much, by the way, for calling attention to the fact that people might feel ashamed of having an abandonment wound. I think I have like, I'm so in connection with mine that I forget, but that's so true. And I think specifically for women, I think there is a stigma in our culture around having daddy issues, which I think is the most sexist fucking term because it's like, oh, so these men get to hurt us. And then it's, and then we're the ones who carry the shame about it. Like, fuck that of, uh, you know, just like more bullshit around not holding men accountable. Yeah. I actually, I saw a meme yesterday that was my dad has daughter issues. And I was like, thank you. I love that. Like, yes. Yeah. yeah. 100%. My dad has, has, child issues like yeah. he that his fucking bullshit is <laughs> okay well anyway a little a little feminist rage moment brought to you by Remy um but yes thank you for bringing that in because i think that's absolutely right so many people feel ashamed to have this abandonment wound and 100% it's an intelligence it's an intelligence inside of you that helped you survive right like that's how you were, if you had to figure out a way to get that parent to stay so that you could survive. Yes. I love that. And I, and I love that you also bring in like how subtle it can be these causes of an abandonment wound. It doesn't have to look like, you know, being beaten, which obviously is going to be a cause, but it can look like something really subtle. And I think a lot of people who are like, I had a really happy childhood, why do I have this thing? Why do I, why does this pattern keep showing up? Like my parents never yelled at me, my right. Like, okay, but maybe there was this other smaller, more subtle thing going on. So yeah, thank you so much for that. And I love that you brought in somatics because that's my next question from a somatic perspective. What happens to us when we experience an abandonment wound? Yeah. Yeah. So In somatics, we are working with the body, which is the subconscious, meaning that we don't actually have a lot of explicit memory around what causes our abandonment wound. So we can recall the details of our life, right? This happened, then this happened, then this happened, and the events. And we often think, oh, my trauma is in that story, in that event, when actually it's in your body. And so in somatics, we're getting curious about, you know, let's say we're working with an abandonment wound. What is the driving force behind your impulse to self-abandon in relationships instead of staying in your body? So at some point in time, we have an experience with our caregivers, or it could be in a friendship or a relationship later on in life that taught us that in order to guarantee safety and intimacy and connection, we had to leave our body. We needed to bypass 
undermine, dismiss, escape the sensations and emotions that our body was experiencing and prioritize what others are experiencing and feeling instead in order to maintain that connection. So this looks like you're with a group of people and you're suddenly like hyper attuned to their body language, what they're saying, how comfortable or not comfortable they are and leaving yourself because of that, because it takes so much energy, right? To like hyper-focus and you might not even be consciously doing this. Most of the time you're not. Our body drives these reactions on a level that our conscious mind can A, be totally unaware of, dissociate from, or B, not even be able to realize we're doing it before our body is driving that reaction. So in somatics, we're getting really curious about what are the sensations that catalyze you towards self-abandoning by not being in your body in order to make everyone around you stay, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, This can look like performing certain emotions as well that we're not feeling. Putting a smile on our face when actually inside there's intense rage or sadness or you name it. Like it can be any emotion that we're like, oh, they're going to reject me if I express this. So I'm going to perform the emotion that they want me to express so that they'll stay. So we call this fawning, right? In from a polyvagal lens. And this is happening based on what your body is perceiving, not your mind. So when we talk about that subtleness, it can be, right, like you and I, Remy, right now, we're having a dialogue primarily on a body-based level. So yes, we're using our words and all of that, but we know now that over 90% of communication is actually our bodies responding to what our, our nervous system is perceiving. So when you shake your head, when you nod your head, yes, I have my own gesture that I, right, like my body wants to lean in in response to that. If I have an abandonment wound and I see a person, let's say, for example, that looks away and maybe it's like they're looking away because their cat is jumping on their plant or um, it can be as subtle as their tone of voice shifts to a tone that doesn't sound as uh, friendly or warm as I would like it to. My abandonment wound will drive me towards abandoning myself to try to get you back in, to try to get you to stay with me, right? So it's it's really subtle, And in somatics, we're slowing down to notice, like, what happens when I, as a practitioner, lean in towards you? And then what happens when I, when I lean back and and maybe look away? What do you feel inside? Right. Mm -hmm. And we're just, all of these gestures have an impact on us, particularly when we have that abandonment wound, because our attachment system, if we think about it as like having a dial, When our attachment is secure, meaning we can lean in and feel safe, we can take space in relationships and feel safe, we have that flexibility, that suppleness. And so our dial can kind of move in response to what is happening with the other person without getting thrown off so easily. 
If we have the abandonment wound, what I see and what I experience myself is our attachment dial gets turned way, way up. It's hyperactive. It's always seeking affirmation and validation that we are safe and there's connection and intimacy and that as you probably have experienced can lead to all sorts of issues. <laughs> uh, but again, I want to, I want to circle back to like, this is so adaptive, right? It's so adaptive to what you were taught about relationships as a kid. And so we want to work on teaching our system that we don't need to have the dial turned up so high that space is actually required in order to stay in our bodies. Wow. Uh, Okay. My mind is so blown. Um, I'm, I was like making mental notes of all the times that I have performed joy and excitement and happiness for other people because I saw that it lit them up and made them want to be around me more that I mean, wow. Like, and, and this is like way, this is as an adult, right? This is not like as a child. I mean, I know I did that as a child, but I was just thinking about all the times that I did that as an adult. But another thing that I thought of while you were talking was yes, I, I, with my abandonment wound, when I, sense that someone is pulling away like you said it could be for a totally innocuous reason but it goes through my abandonment wound lens and what the message that i get is this person doesn't like me this person um doesn't want to be friends anymore this person right like and it makes me think of i remember this one time when i was living in spain i was studying abroad and a friend of mine and i had hung out and We'd had this like really fun day. And then she was like, okay, I'm going to go home and like take a shower and eat something. And then I'll call you. And then like, if you want to come over, you know, we can hang out. And I was like, yeah, awesome. Sounds good. So then I went home and I waited and waited and waited and waited. And she never called. And I was just sobbing. I was like, this always happens to me. I think that I'm really good friends with someone and then I'm not. And they like, you know, the whole thing was a lie. And like, what I I had this like intense meltdown at like 10 o'clock that night, she texted me. She was like, holy shit, Remy, I'm so sorry. I got really stoned and then just completely forgot that we had made plans. I'm so sorry if you want to come over now. I know it's really late, but come over. And like, I had gone through this whole emotional like I'd gone to the depths of hell. <laughs> and and meanwhile, she was just stoned at home. She just forgot, you know? But yeah, um, this hyper awareness that you're talking about and this like, for me, it's this immediacy, this jumping into the, the conclusion, right? Like I'm not wanted, I'm not loved, I'm not valued. I don't have the friend that I thought, right? Like this, just this like, I go right there. And so, yeah, I also, I never thought about the cues that we get through our bodies, but you were right. Like, even when you backed up physically and looked away, when you were describing that, I did feel something in my body right away where I was like, oh, boo, I don't like that. (laughs) Yes. And that's like the beginning of where we rewire, right? Is going, okay, when you back up, I feel a sensation in my chest that's constrictive. And it, it's, it's like, okay, so how do we now tend to this constriction, which is driving these immediate urgent reactions and relationships to self-abandon? 
how do we go? Can I place a hand on this constriction and maybe use the voice I would use to talk to my inner child and go, I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here with you and I'm feeling you, right? I'm going to feel you instead of dissociating from that constriction, which is trying, it's trying to get your attention. It's this old implicit memory that has overcoupled even the slightest sense of distance from someone with threat. So Mm -hmm. space in relationship, when we have the abandonment wound, space is overcoupled with threat. Distance, time to ourselves is overcoupled with, I'm being left alone, I'm being abandoned, no one wants me, everyone's gonna reject me. And so it's a matter of coming home to our bodies and saying, no, I'm here. I'm right here. I'm always going to be here. Yeah. And that constriction learns that we're not going to self-abandon. And it, then the next time we practice that, okay, I'm going to lean back and maybe look away. There's a shift and maybe there's less constriction or there's neutral, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of just like a small little nutshell practice. There's so many other ways to get curious about how our attachment is actually driven in our body. Um, But one of the other practices I'd love to share, if that's okay, is when we have abandonment wounds, our system is overly oriented to looking for reasons that someone might leave. This means we have much less orientation and relationship with the reasons to believe they're going to stay. This means that our physiology has caused us to not be able to receive. So even if we have a partner who is loving and adoring and is there for us, we can't receive it. It's like we're always hungry for more because what's familiar to us and therefore safer to us is no, actually, in some shape or form, you are always abandoning me. You are always not, you're, you're not going to be there. So we need to orient to the ways that in relationships, our needs are being met. So with my clients, it's like, let's look at the ways in which you do feel seen and you do feel loved because oftentimes we're not relating to that enough and we're not allowing it into our body. Because at one point in time, we were taught that that's not safe. Mm, Yeah. Wow, that's really powerful. And I think it is. Yeah, I think I've experienced that and I've seen that in others for sure. And it's so important to to know the difference between that. And also this other thing I want to name, which is like when we are raised by narcissists, and then we become adult or or people who have narcissistic tendencies or rank on the narcissistic scale. When we become adults, we tend to stay in relationships with people who also are narcissists or have narcissistic tendencies. And as a result of that, it's really easy for those people to tell us that, to tell us like, this is your fault. This is you. You you have such an abandonment wound that you can't see that I'm actually really wonderful. Um, so I do want to name that like that's also a tricky piece, right? It's like, and if we've experienced that, 
multiple times as adults, when we do find ourselves in relationship with someone who's really healthy, we can go back to that place. So I want to name that because, you know, I'm always thinking about what it looks like to be accountable for ourselves in a way that's healthy. Because I think when we have that, when we have those early attachments with narcissists or narcissistic types of people, it's really easy to tell us that it's there's something wrong with us, that we're doing something wrong. And at the same time, we also want to be aware that when we're with healthy people, we can go into that place still. It can be part of this subconscious reaction that doesn't serve us. So I just want to say, you know, if people have had early attachments with narcissists or they've had, um, they've been in relationship with narcissists as an adult and they have like, you know, CPTSD as a result of that, um, I do want to say it might really be helpful to get with a therapist and get some objective understanding of the dynamics of the relationship that can be really hard to see from the inside. Sometimes we really need someone from the outside to be like, this person is showing up in a really healthy way, or actually this person's fucking abusive AF. Um, but on the, I love that we brought in this piece about the subconscious. And I think that kind of actually is a great bridge to this next question, because I think a lot of times when we've experienced traumatizing abandonment, we may be carrying that wound in our subconscious without being consciously aware that it's going on. And when that's the case, it comes out in these sort of sideways ways, right? That like don't look exactly like the thing, but looks like this other thing, right? This sideways thing. Can you talk about the different ways that the abandonment wound can show up these sideways ways that maybe don't look so obvious to us? Yes. So like I said, going back to this dial, right? Our attachment system typically is going to get dialed way up. And so it can seem like we are just a person who really loves intensely and really loves connection. And that can be true. I'm not dismissing that. That's very valid and beautiful. And then actually under the surface on a subconscious level, we are deprioritizing our own needs and the messages our body is sending us. And then we're getting, we're becoming resentful towards the other person. When in reality, we're actually the ones causing this sense of self-abandonment. So we might lash out at our partners. It may feel like they can never, ever meet our needs, especially emotionally. It can feel like they they don't think about us. They don't plan the date we want them to plan. We always have to be the one to plan the date. This is a big one for me and my partner. And it's like, I'm not giving him a lot of space to do that. If I'm always the one that has the dial turned way up, right? So there's lots of ways that we subconsciously might be replicating what's most familiar to us from our past, from an implicit memory. So it's under our conscious awareness and that's why it keeps happening. Mm. But your body is your subconscious. So if we want to rewire these patterns that keep repeating themselves, we want to get into the body. And speaking from a personal perspective for a really long time, and even still to this day, it creeps up when I'm stressed. There can be this sense of not being able to trust. 
I had a really hard time trusting men specifically in relationships for most of my life. And I have a really beautiful, wonderful, trustworthy partner. And even when I'm, you know, even with all that, if I'm stressed, if there's tension, this old little voice goes, "Mm, he's, he's being deceitful or he's going to betray you. And Really, it's taken a while, but I have the capacity now to go, oh, okay, I see you, implicit memory, right? I hear you. And and I believe that you're you're feeling something, but actually this person is very much worthy of of my trust. Yeah. Mm, that's that leads me to my next question, which is about attachment styles and and like how does this abandonment wound impact our attachment styles and our relationships. Yeah. Yeah. I really love that we're having this like cultural conversation finally about attachment styles because it's, yeah, it's been needed for a really long time. (laughs) And uh, I love what Esther Perel says about how, you know, yes, we're having this conversation in pop psychology Uh, And we're assigning ourselves and other people different attachment styles. But there's there's a limiting, a a limitation that we're putting on ourselves and other people. when we just take that label, slap it on their forehead and call it a day. It's it's really quite um, it essentializes us, meaning that we become that attachment style to ourselves or to other people when we we just use the label without looking at what's driving the experience of it, which is in our body. So I just want to open with that, right? Like that you are not your attachment style and that actually your attachment style is an adaptive strategy. It is a sign that your nervous system is working well in response to what you were taught about what it means to be in relationships. And that's not just your caregivers. It's also your grandma and grandpa. It's also your siblings. It's also your friends. It's your culture. If we look at it as an ecology versus just all this pressure on parents, especially I think single parents. So um, I think we need to widen and deepen our orientation to attachment styles. So they're not just this label and it's not just the experiences that you can recall in your mind. However, it's a great starting place if we're willing to get into those subconscious patterns in our body. Like I mentioned with secure attachment, we have the suppleness in our nervous system to go, I can take space and still feel safe and loved and seen with my partner and I can lean in and get close and be vulnerable and express my authentic emotions instead of performing them and feel safe, right? With avoidant strategies, typically what happens is we had caregivers who were not present, uh, meaning when they're holding us, because you you can even experience this in your own in your own body, right? Uh, I can put my hand on my arm, but not even know that it's there because I'm dissociated, right? If we had caregivers who showed up like that, they were out to lunch even when they were with us. So there's not a sense of attunement, of mirroring. They're holding us, but they're not 
present in the experience of holding us. There's a lack of feeling their own body and their own feelings. And therefore that threshold for containing our experience is really low. So that's where we have parents who cause us to self-abandon because we're taught that our sadness, our anger, our rage, our tantrum is not okay. It's not safe, right? Uh, Because they have a very low threshold for their own ability to be present with themselves. You know, on a more intense level, it can also look like abuse in any form. And really it can swing either way with abuse. But the idea with avoidance is the reason they're avoiding is because they, on a physiological level, expect to not be met. Mm. They're expecting that if, even if I lean in and I show up and I'm vulnerable, no one's going to be there. So it's this like, fine, then I'm not even going to feel my own feelings. So a lot of avoidance will say, oh, I had a happy childhood. Like it was great. And, And they'll list the reasons they're like, I had food, I had shelter, right? My parents worked hard because there's this strategy of, I'm not even going to feel what happened for me because I won't be met there. There won't be anyone there. And so avoidance, we want to in little bits at a time, reteach the system that there will be someone there to meet you. Amazing. What does the abandonment look like in childhood that begets anxious attachment style? Yeah. So it's inconsistency and unreliability. So generally speaking, anxious attachment people, (laughs) people who have anxious attachment have this generally positive outlook on relationships. They're excited to have friends and, you know, have a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it is. Like they, they love the idea of love and their system has really adapted around this expectation that there won't be consistency and reliability because at one point in time, our caregivers sometimes responded to our cues and sometimes they, they didn't to varying degrees. So they showed up with love to give at certain points and then in subtle or more intense ways, we're not able to read attune and mirror the cues that their child was giving them. So in response to that, the anxious attachment strategy goes, well, I'm just going to go all out in relationships to guarantee that you won't misattune or neglect or hurt me the way I've been hurt. I'll go really big to make up for the places where you can't meet me. Yeah. Yes. I love that. Yeah. That is so relatable. (laughs) <laughs> that's yeah. that's the name of my second memoir. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait to read it. <laughs> so I know we've already talked about this some, but is there anything else that that you want to add around what is what it looks like to heal these abandonment wounds? Uh, I think that what I'd love to really share today is that our stories play an important role in our lives, but that our body, our attachment system lives in our body and our body has resolutions within it that our mind cannot conceive of. And so in a culture that puts the mind on a pedestal, particularly when it comes to these heavier topics, 
it takes a while to flip that orientation to go, hmm, I wonder how my body responds when my partner says that. Where do I feel and what do I feel in response to what I'm experiencing in my relationship here? It can take a while to flip it. And it's so worthwhile because your mind often, because our thoughts and our emotions are being driven by our nervous system, primarily 80% at least, our mind in an attempt to protect us will hyper-focus on the negative. And that's that can be very adaptive, right? If we're hyper-focused on the negative after trauma, then maybe we can avoid it in the future. However, that hyper-focus on the negative, that negativity bias doesn't include the full arc of our lived experience. Our body holds all that nuance. So while I have this really high ACE score and for a long time, it was easy for me to identify as a victim and, oh, woe is me. I just had this horrible history and all of that. And And I don't even think I was aware that I was doing that. Once I got into my body, I realized that there's also sensations of joy and sensations of grounding and power and all of these things that my mind was not orienting to because it wanted to protect me. And so we get to really untangle and piece apart what we have overcoupled with our sense of self, including that shame that, oh my gosh, so much shame, right? When we get into our bodies and I could just go on and on, but I feel like that's a great landing place. (laughs) That is so beautiful. And I love as I could feel it in my body, as you were saying, when you get into your body, you start to experience a knowing that you have joy in there and that you have fun in there and that you have laughter in there. And I mean, you weren't using those words, but that's what was coming to me. It was like, yeah, I really, I really relate to that. And I also really relate to what you sort of mentioned around, like you're hyper-focused on what wasn't working, what you need to, like what needs fixing. I think I do that a lot. I'm like, okay, what do we need to fix? What's wrong? Let's fix it. And I think that's great. You know, I think that's what got me into therapy in the first place. You know, it can be very useful and we don't want to prioritize that. We don't want to make that the only part of our story. We want to also be in touch with our joy and also be in relationship to the moments where we've experienced love and experienced celebration. So thank you so, so, so much for coming on. This has just been an incredible conversation. I love it so much. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you? Uh, So you can go to my website, waking-womb.com or my Instagram, where I share a lot of education uh, at Waking Womb. I have an online immersion coming up starting in January and one-on-one sessions. You can find all the info on that uh, at either my website or Instagram. And I'd love to yeah hear from anyone who has questions. And thank you so much, Remy. This has been so wonderful and so deep. And I love to go deep with my my cat moon. So so thank you. And I just really appreciate your message so much. Oh, my God. Uh, You're so welcome. You are a fucking joy. I've loved having you on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Pachama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's R E M E E Z. 
You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about what we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. And speaking of support... If this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5. I pour myself into this podcast, y'all. I put a ton of time and energy in. So if you're able and moved to, you can go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash the trauma party and scroll down to the support button. And you can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.